0: Our scripture reading is from the book of Ephesians, beginning in chapter 1, page 1156 in the Pew Bibles, starting at verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient.
1: Hey, so uh, let's give it up. Let's give a, a huge round of applause to Country House, right? Anybody? Any Kentucky Derby fans? Yeah, I uh, I watched, the, uh, I have been a huge fan of horse racing for about 11 hours, I think is when I first uh, found myself. I got invited to a, my first ever country, or I don't even know how you say it, Kentucky, that's the word I'm looking for, Uh Kentucky Derby party. I went to a party that was surrounded around the Kentucky Derby, and so I was, you know, getting into all the horses beforehand, checking them out. Uh, Gray Magic. I fell in love with Gray Magic. Gray Magic was awesome. Uh, I think might have come in last. I don't really know what happened with Gray Magic. But as you may know, if you if you didn't watch it, let me tell you, it was an epic epic race. I picked the right one to be the first race I've ever watched. It was the first Kentucky Derby where the champion was decided. Through instant replay, right? Instant replay is ruining every sport, including the Kentucky Derby. The the first dude uh, I guess cheated uh, and and got in the lane of the other horses. I you know I think it's ridiculous. I think I don't even think you need the judges to know who wins the race. I think all that you need to do is just look at the jockeys at the end of the race. And if you are covered in mud, you didn't win, right? <laughs> I mean, there was only one guy, the the guy who won first and he got disqualified. He looked like he could have gone to prom after that. There wasn't a speck of dirt on his little outfit. And then the guy who actually won was completely covered in mud because he was not the first one to cross the finish line. Anyway, uh, all of a sudden, I'm very passionate about about horse racing. I think I probably could have been a jockey. I think I'm about the right build for it had I been given the opportunity. But I was thinking about uh, horse racing. Um, And and I was thinking about, you know, what is it, you know, okay, why do the horses, why do they, what drives them to go? Like, why do they go at all in the first place? Like, what makes them run in this circle on this track? And I I think there's a, a number of ways of answering that, but that's what the jockey is there for. The jockey is to guide them and lead them and make sure that they're going in the right direction Uh, And so then I started to think about, isn't it interesting, do we have any, do we have any uh, greyhound racing fans, any dog racing fans? Okay, okay, Rosemary, I didn't, I didn't know that about you, Rosemary, she loves, uh, all right, next time there's a big race, it's at the Bustards' house. Uh, So dog racing, I don't know if you know this, the same kind of thing, they race around a track, just like they do in horse racing, but there are no jockeys, right? There, there are no little men riding on the, the dogs, and so you're thinking, how do they, how do they know where to go? What, what motivates them to go? And if you watch carefully, if you watch carefully what's going on, what leads them to go is there's a little fake rabbit. It's a little fake rabbit that is attached to a stick, and then that stick is attached to this little mechanical track, which zips the little fake rabbit around the track ahead of the dogs, and they just chase after the rabbit with everything that they have. Now, sometimes there's some interesting YouTube videos of this. Sometimes the mechanical rabbit fails, the mechanism breaks down, and the dogs catch up with the rabbit, and then you've just got like 20 dogs just pouncing on this fake rabbit. I'm not making this up. You can Google this on YouTube, and you can watch this. But normally what happens is that this rabbit is racing around the track And it is always just out of reach. And these dogs, they're given everything that they've got. And that rabbit is just out of reach. And as I watched YouTube videos of Greyhound Racing this past week, I started to think to myself, I think what I see here is a modern parable for life. How many of us, the reality is we are constantly chasing things that are just out of reach. There's something in your career, your career goals that you're chasing after, and it's always just out of reach. Sometimes I think even in our marriages, in our relationships, we have this vision for what we think it should look like, and and, and it seems like we're getting there, we're getting close, but it's always just out of reach. Life seems to be one big greyhound race where we are all giving everything we have to try to get a hold of something that is just out of reach. Today, we're going to be looking at a passage in the book of Ephesians. Next week, we're going to jump ahead and we're going to be doing a series on our church's core values. We're going to be looking at the values of our church and why they are important uh, what they, how they affect everything that we do. These are values, which I go over briefly in our membership class, but that's kind of a fire hose approach to that. So we're going to be spending some weeks revisiting these. Uh, if you've been here for a number of years, we've done this before, but it'll be, it'll be different than before, uh, hoping to help us to see how these core values really affect what we do in our ministry. And so that's what we're going to be doing in the next couple of weeks. Last week, Frank DeLala, God bless you, brother. If you, were, if you were not here, Frank DeLala preached for me. I was out of town. And if you were not here, I would encourage you, go online. We got his message up online. Uh, for some reason, when Frank preaches in the past, there's always a malfunction or something. I don't know why that is. But this time, we got it right, and it's up. And if you, here's the thing. If you are interested in being happy, if you have any sort of desire at all to be happy... I would encourage you to listen to this message that Frank preached last. If you're not interested in being happy, then it's not for you. But if you are interested in being happy, I would, I would encourage you to listen to his message from last week. I do need to say, though, I do need to say, I, I do need to correct something that, that Frank said. You know, it's always a little bit unnerving when you go away and you have a guest preacher coming in. And you're just like, you know, what are they going to say? You know, are they going to, is it going to be heresy? Are they going to get you in trouble? You know, so you're always like holding your breath, Right. And sure enough, uh, Frank said something. He did not not paint accurately a a particular picture. Frank told all of you that five years ago, he came and he preached at this church, and he was late, right? If you were here, he told you this story. He was late, and Steve had to, like, buy time for Frank because he was late getting up here and all this. And I know that some of you are probably thinking to yourself, Kevin, why did you ask this guy to come back? Right? Why, how can you trust him? Clearly, he has shown himself to not be trustworthy. Why would you possibly invite him to come back and preach at our church? Well, here's what you need to understand. He didn't tell the whole story because about a year after that happened, I was invited to preach at his church. Uh, I was invited to fill in for him when, when he was pastoring in a church. I was invited to preach at his church. I wasn't just late. I missed it entirely. I just completely, completely forgot, uh, and so please, if you have any sort of negative thoughts about Frank being late five years ago, for my sake, please just let them go. Forgive him. Anyway, Frank, thank you so much for preaching, preaching last week. All right. Now, we're, gonna, we're looking at a passage in the book of Ephesians, and we'll get to why I picked this passage here in a little bit, but just kind of some, some basic background. Of course, this is a letter that was written by a man named Paul, one of the first early Christians in the early Christian community, one of the leaders in the early church. He was very instrumental in planting churches all throughout the Mediterranean region. And this is, this is a letter. I love the book of Ephesians. And there are people will debate this sort of thing, but I'm of the school of thought that I think Ephesians perhaps captures Paul's theology as well as any book. I might, even say, I might even go so far as to say that it rivals Romans. Uh, Romans is, certainly covers a breadth of, of theology, um, but it, it still was occasional in the sense that he had a specific purpose that he was writing it, whereas Ephesians, it seems, is even more general. Ephesians is a letter that he writes to the people in Ephesus, uh, but there seems to be less of a, a purpose or an agenda. He clearly wanted this letter to be circulated um, amongst other churches. And I think you get a really good picture of Paul's theology uh, in this this book. And what he does in the beginning, you'll see he's writing to this community in the city of Ephesus, which is a a town in modern-day Turkey, on the coast of modern-day Turkey, the city of Ephesus. And he's writing to the church there, and we see that he tells them that he's praying for them. He tells them that he's praying for them. We see this here. Uh, I have not stopped, this is verse 16, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then he goes on, he says what he prays for. In verse 17, he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. So he's praying that God might give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, what, what does that mean? When we think of wisdom, we think of revelation. I, I think we tend to think of revelation as, well, you have a revelation, right? You, uh, you have some sort of new insight. Uh, you have a new idea. You know, maybe you're, you're, uh, you're having some sort of challenges at work, and you're not sure how to fix the problem, and, and then you have a revelation. This new idea comes to you, almost like downloaded into your brain, and I think that maybe that's what we often think of. We think that's what Paul's talking about, is he gives some, some new information uh, and a revelation. And I'm not, I'm not sure that that's necessarily what he's talking about. The reason for this is that, is that, that grammatically, it seems actually that verse uh, 18 uh, is actually uh, seeks to further explain what is said in 17. You don't get that flavor from the way the NIV translates it. The NIV likes to translate the the scriptures in little bites, little nuggets, um, so that it's a little easier to kind of take in. The thing about Paul is that he has these incredibly long run-on sentences. And so, for example, in this passage here, the sentence doesn't actually end until I think verse 22 or 23. It's one big run-on sentence. And so, it seems actually that verse uh, 18 is uh, seeking to further explain what he said in verse 17. Let me read to you what the ESV, the English Standard Version says, translated, it says, I pray that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, having having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe. You see, that, that's what he's saying it means to receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation is all of that. So let me just sort of sum up what I think, I think an easy way of summarizing what he means when he prays that, that they would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation. He is praying that they would be transformed by the things of God. He's praying that they would be transformed By the things of God. Verse 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. See, we need to realize that here. What we're talking about here, again, when we think of revelation, we tend to think of some sort of information that now comes into our minds. But he's talking about the eyes of your heart. And when it comes to your heart, this is important, your heart doesn't just receive information. Your heart is something that needs transformation. So he's talking about an inner transformation that goes beyond just learning something. Uh, I can give you an example of the difference between transformation and information. Um, Smoking, everybody here knows that smoking is bad for you. Everybody knows that, even people who smoke. They know that smoking is bad. It's not information that a person who is smoking needs, right? They know it's bad for you, but it hasn't gotten into the heart. That reality hasn't worked its way into the heart. Sometimes what it takes is for them to see someone they love die of lung cancer. And then that helps to bring transformation at an affective level. So it's different than just knowing something. And that's really what Paul is talking about here. He wants us to be transformed by the things of God. Now, what, what are these things of God that we find in these verses That Paul is hoping will transform us. And the first one is this. Paul is hoping, Paul is praying that we would be transformed by an undying hope. We would be transformed by an undying hope. Again, just in verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. You know the reason why I picked this passage is we're going to see this emerges throughout this passage is I chose it in light of Easter. Here we are just a couple weeks after Easter. And Easter is a day that we celebrate but it's really a day that we should continue to celebrate. In many respects every Sunday is a day to celebrate what happens on Easter but particularly in the weeks that follow Easter Day is a time for us to celebrate what Easter is all about. And and here's here's what Easter is about. Easter is about hope. Easter is about ultimate hope. Easter message is, is pretty simple. No matter how bad things get, there is always hope. You see, friends, and that's something that I think is really uniquely Christian because we have the resurrection of Jesus is like nothing else in any other religion, and it is this incredible foundation for hope that not even death can put an end to our hope. You know, for Christians, this is important for us to know here. When we think about we long for things to be better, for Christians, it is never a matter of if it is only a matter of when. It's never a matter of if. It is only a matter of when. It might be in this life. It might be in the next life. But as you become transformed by the hope of God, the difference between this life and the next life starts to become one. One of my favorite writers who passed away a few years ago, and he's known, Dallas Willard, for being someone who who seems to have really tapped into the presence of God. And the joke is that when he died, we're not sure if he would have realized that he died because the transition would have been seamless for him. When you come to know the hope of Easter, you know that that the problems that you're facing, it's never a matter of if, it's only a matter of when. When you take the heart of Easter and it will transforms you. Here's what you're going to realize. Your retirement is secure. How many of us worry about retirement? You worry about retirement. Am I going to have enough for retirement? The answer is if your hope is in Easter, you will have enough for retirement. Because here's what you need to realize is that for Christians, retirement doesn't come before death. It comes after death. That's, that's when we live. That's when we live this life of complete and total rest and freedom in the presence of God. You see, we, we think of retirement as I've got to try to squeeze in my retirement before I die. Right? I've got to squeeze it in. I know I'm going to die soon, so I've got to squeeze it in. But you see, when you're transformed by the undying hope that is revealed to us, Easter, you realize that your retirement is secure. How many of us fear of tomorrow steals today's joy? Isn't that true? For many of us, the fear of tomorrow steals today's joy. That many of us, like things are fine now. And there's all kinds of things to celebrate, all kinds of things to be joyful about. But we're afraid of tomorrow. We're afraid of what's going to happen tomorrow. And that steals our joy for today. Now, here, here's, what we're, here's what we're taught. I think sort of a secular mindset. And there's some merit to this, though I don't think it ultimately works. And here's, here's what the, our secular society tells us, is to live in the present, right? Live in the present. Right? Don't, 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 don't worry about the future. Live in the present. Now, I mean, there, there is some merit to that for sure. But here's the problem. I just don't think it's really possible. In fact, I was reading. Uh, I'm reading a book on conscious. Well, it's talking about consciousness, and it's talking what like what is consciousness, and you know, do you know, do animals have consciousness, or do some animals have consciousness and others don't have consciousness? You know, we have consciousness, and where's the line? What's the what's the difference? And one school of thought suggests that one of the unique differences between human beings and Most animals or a lot of animals I don't really know is precisely our ability to see the future, to think about the future and the past, that we don't just live in the present. That might actually be part of what really marks us out as unique in the animal kingdom. Now, what I want to say is if that's what marks us out as unique, then good luck on trying to not be that way. Good luck on trying to not be that way. I mean, if that is fundamental... To who we are, good luck in just trying to live in the present. Now, here's the thing. You see, as Christians, we don't have to simply live in the present because the future is secure. The future is secure. We can look to our problems and our challenges, and we can know it's not a matter of if. It's only a matter of when that God is is going to make things right. So what is Paul praying for the church in Ephesus? He's praying that they would be transformed by the things of God. He's praying, first of all, that they would be transformed by an undying hope. Secondly, he's praying that they would be transformed by an awareness of their inestimable worth, of their own inestimable worth. Again, this is still in verse 18. I pray that The eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Look at this. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, you might think this is talking about what our inheritance is. But if you look carefully, it's not. It's talking about what God's inheritance is. His inheritance in the saints, what it's saying is that God's inheritance is you. God's inheritance is me. When you think of the word inheritance, what do you think of? You think of, well, you know, inheritance will get you money. Uh, You know, when I receive my parents' inheritance from my parents, I get their money. Um, I get their vacation house get grandmother's piano, you know, whatever. You, you have this inheritance. What this is saying is, is that God has an inheritance. God has something that he is looking forward to having fully and completely. And do you know what it is? It's you. And it's me. God's inheritance, is, what, what this is talking about is our inestimable worth and value before God. Jesus tells a a parable. He tells a parable about a man who discovers a treasure, treasure buried in the ground. And this treasure is so valuable that he goes and he sells everything that he has in order to buy the plot of land that this buried treasure is buried in so that he can have the treasure. Jesus, as he's telling this parable, he's actually... Using an image that would have been common to the people living in Palestine at that time. This actually happened quite frequently, that Palestine over the centuries had been a place where that had been in turmoil where different nations would come and different peoples would come and conquer, and then another nation would come and conquer, and another nation would come and conquer. And if you were living in the land, oftentimes what would happen is you know you're about to get attacked, you're about to get uh, uh, conquered. And so, what people would do is they would take their valuable treasures, they would bury them in the ground with the hope that later on they might be able to come back and dig up their treasures, but those who came to occupy wouldn't know that they were there. Oftentimes, they never got the chance to do that, and this was happening just constantly over time. And so, in the time of Jesus, you could go, you'd be walking around in the land of Palestine, and in the field, you could find these treasures, and so, Jesus is using that as an analogy, and he's talking about somebody who goes and they find this treasure in the ground, and it's so valuable that they sell everything that they have in order to get the field that has that treasure in it. Now, he says that that is what the kingdom of God is like. Now, the reality is it's, there are disagreements on how one can interpret that. Some will interpret it as saying that that's a passage that's talking about what it means to follow Jesus, that when you come to realize how valuable Jesus is, then you're going you're to give up everything, right? You're going to give up everything in order to follow Jesus. Jesus is the treasure, and you're going to sell everything that you have in order to get Jesus. But, you know, the reverse is also true. That parable perfectly explains to us what his entire mission was about. The God Himself came to Earth, and he found an inestimable treasure, and that's you, and that's me. And not only did He give everything that He had, he gave his very life for us. You see, Paul is praying that we would be transformed by the reality of our inestimable value before God. Friends, how, how many of us, here's just the reality? He'll, How many of us are still looking for our worth and our value in something else? How many of us are looking for our worth and our value to be affirmed by those around us? And when that's the case, this is why we're so sensitive to criticism. When you're sensitive to criticism, that is a sign that you're seeking your worth and your value in those other than God himself. It's you not realizing that God already sees you as having inestimable value. And that's what Paul's praying. He's praying that the church in Ephesus, that they would come to see their inestimable value before God. Paul's praying they would be transformed by the things of God, transformed by this undying hope, transformed by an awareness of their inestimable value. And finally, that they would be transformed by the incomparable power of God. Again, beginning in verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and His incomparably great power for us who believe. Incomparably great power, right? A power that you cannot compare anything to it, right? Now, there so there are things in life that you can compare that are comparable, right? So right now, my family is expanding. So we are looking at vehicle options and uh, looking at different minivans. And there are comparable automobiles, right? You've got like the Honda Odyssey and the Toyota Sienna. I mean, you've, you've got these different ones that, you know, some have some features that are nicer than others, whatever. But, but they're comparable. But I'll tell you what is not comparable to the Honda Odyssey in terms of carrying a family around is my Honda Civic, right? That's not comparable. The Honda Odyssey is incomparably greater for carrying a family around than the Honda Civic is. Um, in fact, you know, you ever notice when, when something is just incomparably greater, it almost makes you laugh? You just have to laugh at it. I, I remember when I was living in Colorado, I went to church and I was in this, this young adult kind of group and it was my first time there, and I, I was introduced to this guy named Rob Kozeski is his name. And we subsequently became friends. But this was the first time I met him. I just started talking with him, and somehow it comes up that he plays tennis. And I'm like, I said, I said, oh, I play tennis too. We should go play tennis sometime. And I'm not kidding. Like, I think I was the new guy, so everybody was kind of listening in. And the whole room just starts laughing. They're laugh- I'm like, I'm like, What? Well, as it turns out, Rob Kazeski, his senior year in high school, was the number one tennis player in the state of Colorado. He's a professional. Who, he trains tennis players, right? And so they're laughing because this is a joke. Kevin Hanley is going to play tennis? against, And we did. We went out and we played one time. And uh, basically, the rule, he, he said, if you can get 10 points off of me before I beat you in straight sets, I'll buy you a burrito. And I did. I got 10 points he beat me 6-0, 6-0. I think he double-faulted all those 10 points. I don't remember. But anyway, I mean, he is incomparably greater than me. And, and this, this, is what, this is what Paul wants us to see here is that the power of God is incomparably greater than any other power. In, in fact, it, it, it's so much better that you can almost just kind of laugh at what other powers might rear their head in your direction. You know, honestly, this is one of the reasons... Um, well, every time Halloween comes around, Halloween is one of those uh, uh, holidays where Christians kind of disagree on how, what should we do with Halloween, and, and I respect different views. I, I, I get the different perspectives that people come with, but my, my, my take on it is that Halloween is an opportunity for us to just sort of laugh at the incomparably great power of God over all powers of darkness. In fact, you know, it, 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 have you ever thought about the, the common picture of the devil, and it's, you know, like the pitchfork and the horns and the tail, right? It's, it's really just kind of silly. And as it turns out, that image was, uh, that, that picture of the devil is something that emerged in the Middle Ages. And it was actually, it emerged precisely as a way of just kind of mocking the devil, making fun of the devil as a way of saying, look, our God is so much greater than you. So to me, Halloween is an opportunity for us to almost laugh. In light of the resurrection, at the incomparably great power of our God over all things. Now, what is this power, right? What does this power do? When Paul's talking about this power coming and transforming us, what does he have in mind? Right? There's different kinds of power. You have power in an electrical outlet. It's power that can charge your battery. Uh, You have a tow truck uh, that has the power to tow your car. Money has the power to buy things. A police officer has the power to arrest you. When Paul is talking about this power bringing transformation in our lives, what, what does he have in mind? And I would simply say this is what he has in mind. It's the power to bring our hearts back to life. It's the power to bring our inner being, our inner self, back to life. And I think we see this because of what he says in the next section, in chapter 2. So we, chapter 1, he's just been talking about this power, this incomparable power. And then he says here, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who was at work, and those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. So what he's talking about here, he's talking about what the power of God can do It's precisely to bring back to life that which is dead in our hearts. And what does it mean for your heart to be dead? What does Paul have in mind when he says that your heart is dead? And I would simply say that this is perhaps what he's getting at. To be dead in the heart is to be enslaved by our passions and our desires. To have a dead heart is actually to have a heart that is enslaved by our passions and And our desires. In other words, what it means to be dead in the heart is to be someone who is going through their life where everything is just out of reach. What it means to be dead in the heart is that those passions and cravings that we have, they lead us. They lead where we go, but they are never satisfied. This says here in verse some. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. I don't actually think that's the best translation of it. Literally what it's saying is all of us lived among them at one time in the passions of our flesh. The idea here is actually that it's not gratifying, that you're living in this, but it's not satisfying, that everything is this pursuit of that which is out of reach. What it means to be dead in the heart is to be like a greyhound dog chasing a bunny that is always just out of reach. Friends, how many of you here this morning are plagued by just a lack of satisfaction in your life? Maybe you are unsatisfied in your career, in your marriage. Maybe you are unsatisfied with how things have turned out in terms of your financial well-being. I mean, there's so many different ways in which we are unsatisfied. Is, is, Is it possible that we are simply enslaved by our passions and we are after something that is always just a little bit out of reach? Friends, the heart of the gospel, what Paul wants us to see, is that there is a power to set us free from that enslavement. What exactly is this power? What is this power that can set us free from this enslavement? And it's nothing short of the very power that raised Jesus from the dead. Look at this in verse 19. His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which exerted in Christ, which he exerted in Christ. When he raised him from the dead. Friends, the, the heart of the Christian faith, and this again, what we celebrate at Easter, is that the very power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to work in our hearts and to bring transformation. And Paul is praying that that is what would take place. Now, the question, of course, is how, how do I get access to this power, right? How do I access this power that raised Jesus from the dead? And this is what Paul... I want us to see what Paul is saying. He's talking to the church in Ephesus. He's talking to a group of those who claim to be followers of Jesus, and here's what he wants them to see. It's already inside you. The very power that is available to bring transformation in your life is already inside you. And, And Paul makes this point earlier on in the passage. Verse 13, he says, And you were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. He's saying that when we put our faith in Christ, the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead comes inside of us and is there and is available to work in our lives. It's a little bit like have you ever been in that situation where you're like, I don't wear glasses, so I've never been in this situation. But some people are like, have you seen my glasses? I can't find my glasses, right? Where are my glasses? And they're, they're like, oh, they're on your face, right? I think this is what Paul wants us to see, right? Where is the power? Where is the power of God to work in my life? He's saying like, it's already inside of you. Now, here's the point where you might feel discouraged, Right? You might feel discouraged because you're saying to yourself, I don't sense the power of the Spirit in my life. What do you mean the Spirit of God is inside of me? And again, I think this is why it's instructive to notice here. I think Paul anticipates this. Because look, again, who is Paul praying for? He's saying, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. He's praying that you would come to realize the power of the Spirit. He's praying for Christians. In other words, Paul sees that this is what's going on in the church of Ephesus, that the power of the Spirit is in them, but they don't seem to realize it. And so if that's you, realize you're in good company. I mean, this is exactly how the church in Ephesus was. And so this is why Paul was praying for them. Friends, as we come out of Easter weekend, this is an opportunity for us to reflect on the reality that because Jesus rose from the dead, that very power is available to work in our hearts and our lives. If you're you're in a place in your life where you just feel stuck, you're in a place where you feel like, you know what, I, I have been dealing with this for so long. And I just, I just can't ever see myself getting through this. This is what we celebrate on Easter, is you look to the empty tomb. You look to the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead, and that power is alive and able to work in your life. tide this season is a time when we come before God with an undying hope. We come before God recognizing that we have an inestimable worth, that God loves us, and He wants what is best for us. And we come before God really knowing and believing and trusting and hoping that God can and will work in your heart. Friends, whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're going through, my prayer, as Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus, my prayer is the same for you that you would come to know that your heart would be enlightened by the power of God that is already inside of you. you pray with me? Dear God, we come before you this morning as a distracted people. God, we're looking for our glasses, but they are already on our face. We are looking for the power to bring change in our heart. And it's right there inside of us. God, I pray that we would reflect deeply on the meaning of Easter and the hope that we have in that. And God, I, I just pray that you would break down walls. I pray that hearts would be set free. God, I pray that those of us who are enslaved to certain passions and desires that are not satisfying, God, I pray that you would chip away. You would pull us away from that. God, we would be drawn to you and you alone. God, I pray that we would find that you are everything that we need and that you have the power to bring us to you. We pray this in Jesus' name.